and let's go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair somewhere around you within reach. Definitely grab one so you can follow along and see the words as we study uh, the Word of God verse by verse and just let, let God speak for himself from his Word. Matthew 6. Matthew is in the New Testament, the first book. That's uh, towards the end of your Bible there, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through Matthew. And uh, we're in a a series here, the final part of our series in the section of verses 25 to 34 on worry, worry and anxiety. Well, as uh, we are here in part 5 in our study on the topic of worry, we've um, talked much If you haven't been with us, we've uh, seen statistics, uh, things like whole fractions of the population really battle with anxiety and worry, even and especially in our country, our relatively prosperous nation. Anxiety disorders are uh, the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting about one out of every five adults. That's just those who get diagnosed. It's as common... As anything else, worry. We all face it for various reasons, one of which is because life is just demanding. Life is just demanding. The demands of life can back us into a corner at various times, press us down. Life does not care how demanding it is. Really, demands of life are, are seem sometimes to be totally unconcerned with the weight of the worries it puts on us, the mass of anxiety that will inevitably face us. You live long enough and it will. The burdens that seem to bury us sometimes. By the simple fact of existing, life will be demanding. The question is not will life be demanding, but how will we deal with it? How will we deal with it? One writer has said the demands of this world will produce deep anxiety in a person unless, as we've been studying, people learn to trust God. It is the only solution. It is the only solution. We do not always have an explanation for why the worries pile upon us, why the demands attempt to bury us. That can be a measure of added frustration, but we do know as we've been seeing in this study, that Christ is hes not taking time to turn over every rock and say, this is why. This is why there are worries and anxieties. Instead, he's doing something far more helpful for us. He's not explaining all the whys behind worry. Instead, he's showing us the who in worry. Far more important. The who to look to in worry. Often we ask ourselves, the question, what do we need to do about worry in Matthew 5, uh, excuse me, 6.25 to 34? He is instead saying, here is who you need to get to know in worry and who you get to need to get to know better. A great God who is sovereign over all the demands of life who you can trust. Life is inevitably going to be demanding. We can numb ourselves, put band-aids on deep issues. 
or make a beeline to the who. It's the who that Christ is presenting us to. A good, sovereign, caring God, the God of the universe, whose children we can can become freely through faith in Christ. And so more important than why behind everything that happens and become the source of our worry is the who. The who. Hope, hope really, uh, which we need in life, in face of worry, hope is not defined as the absence of hard things, but the presence of God who is with us in hard things. So by God's grace, Christ is helping us bulk up our minds and our souls for action by really taking a, a slow stroll through the gallery of God. And to look very carefully at every portrait of God from different angles. Who? In a world full of worry. David Pallison, again, who we've been, we've been quoting from him now and then. He's done much, some of the most competent research on worry in our day. He's, he says this, Christ explains our worries not by pointing how uncertain life is, but by pointing us something in ourselves. You worry because of you, not because of things. And he points us to God. So we'll get right into our series, part five. Strolling around through the gallery of God, a God who knows, cares, and is absolutely committed to the greatest good of all who trust in him and become his children by faith in Christ. Follow along as I read then Matthew five, uh, 6, excuse me, starting in verse 25. I'm going to read the whole thing just for a little bit of context to verse 30. Jesus says, for this reason, verse 25, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What, what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Indeed it does. Well, just a a brief context if you haven't been with us. This section of uh, Matthew 5 through 7 We are in the middle of it here. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most important, most well-known sermon Jesus ever preached. And he preaches it uh, pretty common, uh, pretty frequently, I should say, throughout the region of Galilee. At the time in the first century, there are some 200 or so fishing villages to to a people whose really uh, material situation, financial situation, is far below that of a 21st century Western audience. And so rightly, he addresses many things, not the least of which in verses 25 to 34 is this issue of worry. And he is saying, as you as you saw in the reading there, that the cure to anxiety is not about changing our circumstances, but changing our trust, changing 
our focus on God. We will not flee worry by fleeing worry, but we will flee worry by fleeing to God. That's what we've been seeing here. And Christ assumes that his word, far above worldly psychiatric diagnoses, he assumes his word, the knowledge of God, trusting in him, will be radically and abundantly sufficient to address this very difficult problem. So we're going to get right into it. We have much to cover tonight in our last part. We've been seeing big picture, the bird's eye view, verse 25 to 34 is this. It's in your bulletin as well. I'll put it up here. Just really the the bird's eye view here of this passage is this. In light of how loving, competent, aware, and sovereign our Father God is, whose children will become through Christ, we can give ourselves fully to the joy of God's priorities and thereby live a worry-free life. Because he's so loving, aware, provided we become his children through faith in Christ. And that is really assumed in the passage. That Christ is assuming you've done the most important and rational thing that any human being can do. Namely, come to God and trust it in Christ for forgiveness to be made right with God to secure eternal life. And then thereby we give ourselves fully to the joy of God's priorities. And and the result of that is a worry-free life. So then, 13 principles are outlined. We've seen through verse 25. We've identified 13 principles which lay our worry to rest. 13 principles which God guarantees if we do things God's way here. We can be putting our anxiety to death here. We've covered, I believe the first, we've covered 10 of them. So we've gone through verse 25 to uh, verse 32 already very briefly if you haven't been with us we'll we'll cover cover these very quickly number one we saw this at the very beginning the history principle we can rid of worry by recalling the historical context in which Jesus spoke again this is a first century greatly impoverished culture living day to day not they, they didn't have decisions about what to eat but if they would eat and so if Christ His grace and His power and His words are enough for them. Surely it's going to be enough for you and I. The history principle. Number one. Second, we saw the morality principle. That we can be rid of worry since it is sin against God. And God came to cleanse us from sin. Christ makes worry a moral issue. That in fact it it is a sin against God, anxiety is. We talked about that extensively. And Christ and His love comes to forgive and purge us of sin. Third, the quantity principle. The quantity, Christ says, is not life more than food? Verse 25. Life is more than physical stuff. But by worrying, we in effect declare that life is only about this thing that I'm worrying about right now. And Christ says, oh, child of God, life is so much bigger than just cash and clothes, crops. Have a bigger view of life. Bring God into your life. That your view... Life would grow in quantity, as it were. Third, fourth, the competency principle. The competency principle. Christ, you saw the argument of flowers and birds. Christ is like, look, God takes care of birds and and things like flowers. And he's been doing a good job of it before you were here. Don't you think he's going to be able to care for you? Don't you think he's going to be competent enough to take care of stuff you need if... He sees to the flowers and birds and every other molecule and atom in the universe for that matter. The competency principle. Fourth, fifth, 
We saw the costly principle. Christ said at the end of verse 26, You're, aren't you, you are worth much more than flowers and, and birds. God provides for things which are less valuable to Him than people. And so we can deduce, man, relax, He's going to take care of you. The costly principle, sixth. The futility principle. Notice in verse 27, he made that argument. He said, who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? He, he says, tell me, how, how has worry helped you to, I don't know, um, help provide your needs or add length to your life? How's that going for you? How is worry helping you to accomplish the things you need to do? It doesn't work. Worry is not an effective way to get stuff done. That's the point. It's futility. It's futility. It accomplishes nothing. Seventh. We saw the beauty principle in verses 28 to 29. Christ takes the argument from flowers a little further. He says, not only does God take care of the flowers, but look at them. They have an unnecessary beauty. They have a beauty that is beyond what is needed. Why? Because God is so competent to take care of things. He was having fun when he adorned the some 400,000 different types of flowers that there are on the earth with this intricate, majestic beauty. And so, again, deduce from that that he's competent to take care of you. The beauty principle. Eighth, we saw the eternity principle. The eternity principle in verse 30. He said, look, God clothes the grass of the field. It's alive today, but it's thrown in the furnace tomorrow. How much more is he going to take care of you? Meaning, look, flowers don't go to heaven. They don't, they don't last forever. Assuming we trusted in Christ, people do. So if he takes care of flowers that are just here for a day and gone the next, he's going to take care of you who, through Christ, will spend eternity with him. And then ninth, we studied the reality principle. Worry is the consequence of believing non-truth. We talked extensively about this. You can get the messages online. But when he says, you have little faith, uh, faith has, is always rooted in logic, truth, and reality. And so Christ, in effect, told us every act of worry is believing an irrational belief. It is believing something that is not true. Anxiety, every moment of anxiety is based on non-truth. The reality principle. Tenth, the family principle. Worry only makes sense if God is not yet your father. It only makes sense if you don't know God. If you're a Christian, worry is one of the most illogical acts and things you could ever do. In light of who God is and how great he is. But worry and, thing, and complaining are the most, those really two things are the most irrational thing that a Christian could ever do. In light of how much God loves us, what he's re- rescued from us from, and who he is. We're in God's family. Truly, there is no need to worry. Well, all that by way of review, let's do our final few principles. Number 11, the intimacy principle. The intimacy principle. Worry is unnecessary since God both knows and cares about our needs. He both knows and cares about our needs. Look at verse 32. Do not worry. Excuse me. Verse 32. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows. This is a pivotal truth in the passage, believer. Knows that word there in the Greek, it has the idea of to observe or pay attention 
to give an attentiveness to something with a knowledge of what must be done for that thing. That's what that Greek word knows means. It means much more than just, I know uh, some encyclopedic fact. This simple truth alone can diminish your worry, friend. God has an attentive, sovereign knowledge of you, your needs, your family, if you have one, what needs to be done. This is picking up on the theological truth that God is omniscient. Omniscient, which means that he knows all things there is to know simultaneously, such that God never learns new information. And he is constantly aware of all things without the possibility of getting distracted, being apathetic or forgetting. God is omniscient. That is such a practical theological truth. We need to preach that to ourselves every day. He knows. And he is not only he not only knows, but look what it says in verse 32. Your heavenly father, your father who is in heaven. Christ picks up on not only his fatherhood, but the superiority, his transcendence that he's in heaven. He knows. Our needs are not news to our heavenly father. Often we act as if often we act as if our anxiety is sort of an effective way to inform God of something we need, isn't don't we? That's really what anxiety is doing. Like, oh, well, my, maybe my prayer, my prayers haven't been working. So maybe my, wor- my worry will sort of clear up the telephone line from me to God in heaven, and maybe that'll be a way of informing him. I'll send him an email via my anxiety. No, worry does not notify God of our needs, nor convinces him to care. Worry does not notify God of your needs, nor does it convince him to care. So much of of your worry, friend, can be laid to rest through that truth. Let's preach that to ourselves. God cared for you long before you existed. How? When he resolved in his mind before creation, Ephesians 1.4 says, to, to send Christ to die for you, as we sang. And when Christ came 2,000 years ago, that was, about the, that was the most loving thing that God could possibly do. And guess what? He did it without you having to convince him to do so. Have you ever thought about that? The death of Christ did not come about as a result of you thinking and needing and worrying about your need. It came as a result of God's decision, not yours. And that is what is meant by God's sovereign grace. It was his decision. You didn't have to worry 2,000 years ago about your need for forgiveness and God's love in order for it to happen. Amazing. And yet God still knew your need and met it. Just think on that truth. Before you were even alive, he did the thing that you needed most without you ever having to be anxious about it. What does that say about God and his intimate knowledge of your needs? His care for them. You don't have to leverage his care. You don't have to inform him of your needs, friend. 
It is not our worry, but God's sovereignty and his fatherhood, which convinces himself to care for you. God convinces himself to care for you. Your worry doesn't. Think of it this way. In in the church, we have guys becoming dads about every other week. I've been in the hospital visiting babies about twice in the last two weeks. And as often as that happens, and I talk to you new dads in the hospital, I've noticed something funny. Fascinating observation. Never once have I had a dad say this. Gosh, Eric, you know this, um, this whole dad thing. What does my new son, my, do, my new daughter need? Could you tell me? Not once has that happened. No, because you dads know what the child needs months and even years before that child comes into the world. Before that beloved child has a clue what it needs, before that beloved child even knows what need means. How much more do you think that is the case with your heavenly father? He knows. Stop worrying. He knows. He has assumed the responsibility to care for you the day you cried out in broken, shattered conviction over your sin and just said, Jesus, save me. From that day on, not because you are so great and worried so much, but because he loves you, he decided to assume competent care of you. He knows. He knows. Scotty Smith has rightly said, worry is not believing God will get it right. It's also believing God is incompetent to get it right. That's why it's sin. I was reading recently a testimony of a, of a guy who lost his 29-year-old daughter to a lifelong debilitating disease. Recently, and, and as I read his testimony, he didn't deny the pain, he didn't deny the hurt, but he kept going back to this intimacy principle. That God is a perfect father who knows. And he wrote this, quote, This God is himself our father, a father who knows what is best for his children and who faithfully directs our lives accordingly. Moreover, he is the father who in love one day gave up his own son to bear our curse in order to redeem us to himself. Yes, of course, there are many why questions that we cannot answer, but we lack no proof of God's love or his goodness, and we bless him today with deeper passion than ever. End quote. That's sound thinking, isn't it? That just makes sense. This God from the scriptures. Sustained by a father who knows the intimacy principle. Worry is unnecessary since God both knows and cares. 11. Number 12. The priority principle. The priority principle. Worry dies when God becomes our top priority in everything. Our worry dies when God becomes our top priority in everything. What we'll see in this text here is something fascinating. That Christ makes a correlation. Christ is such a brilliant thinker. He tells us this. He says, there is a direct correlation between God and his priorities being your priorities. 
and your worry. The more you are worrying and anxious, the less your life revolves around God and the more you're trying to get God or something something else revolve around your life. Look at verse 33. He says this, but seek first. It's really the the, the overriding command, the main command in the passage. Seek first, verse 33, his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This contrasts worrying about things of the earth. Instead of being like the Gentiles, those who don't know God, who scurry in a million directions. Instead, verse 33, Christ pr- proposes an alternate solution to, to kill our worry. Seek first his kingdom. Notice that. Seek first there. That word from the Greek that's translated seek could also be translated strive for, aim at. Aim at something. Single focus. It carries the idea of devoting serious effort to realizing a goal. And in the Greek, the the command there for the seek, it's, it's in a tense that indicates a constant seeking. It's not, it, he's not saying, well, intermittently, as it's convenient for your planner, seek. He's not saying, well, Sundays seek. No, it's continually seek. And notice it says seek first, that word first there. It has the idea of first in rank or first in priority. He's speaking of priorities. You know, sometimes we hear the Americanity priority list. You know, well, God, family, work, fun. That's not what Christ is saying. Christ is saying, God, 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 God. And then a funny thing happens. All the other things we worry about, they'll happen. They'll be taken care of. Seek God. Seek His kingdom. First, chiefly it means... Instead of seeking the things of the earth, seek Christ. Seek, seek the kingdom of God. And notice, and notice he has two things we are to seek. Look at the text there. Worry is eradicated when we start seeking two things. First, his or God's kingdom. Second, his righteousness. Christ boils the worry problem down to these two commands involving seeking two things. Devoted prioritizing and seeking God's kingdom eradicates worry, he's saying. In effect, and devoted prioritizing and seeking God's righteousness eradicates worry. Now, what is God's kingdom such that we would know to seek? If you're with us in our earlier days of our study in Matthew, recall this topic of the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a very complex and one of the broadest issues, the deepest issues in the whole Bible. A short definition, though, I'll put it up here just to explain God's kingdom. It has a present and a future aspect to it. The present reign or rule or lordship of Christ through the word of God by the Holy Spirit's presence in us, I should say, expressed in and through the church. The church being uh, regenerate individuals who have believed in Christ, gathered for worship, obedience to Christ together. And then the future aspect, the future reign or lordship of Christ when he returns to earth to make all things right and rule forever. Now, the kingdom of God that we have to let's continue to examine this a little bit. Generally speaking, a kingdom has a few things, right? It has a king, of course. 
has a king. It has a people who that king cares for, leads, rules over. And the people subsequently honor and obey and, and, and follow him. There's also a place where that king exercises his, his rule. And there are laws or customs or wishes of the king in that kingdom. That's all bound up in what Christ is talking about here. Now, take those generalities about a kingdom further as it pertains to God's kingdom. The king, of course, is Christ himself. He said this so often. The entire Bible substantiates that truth. I'll put a couple verses up here where Christ talked about that he is a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning its values and approach are not the values and approach of, of those values that the world has. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, as he says, as he's about to be crucified, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the, to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, this Roman governor says, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. Christ, let it be known. None of this patronizing of Jesus saying, oh, well, he was a good moral teacher, but that's about it. No, no. No, no, Christ saw himself as the king of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, above all rulers, past, present, and future. You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born. I came into the world. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Indeed. And in Colossians 2.10, he is head over all rule and authority. Over what is Christ king? All rule and authority. Lord, that term so often used of Christ is a term of, of, of kingship and supremacy. So Christ is the king. Let it be known. The people he cares for. Let's talk about that for a minute. He rules over. Philippians 3.20. It's, it's Christians. Those who have trusted in Christ. They don't enter into his rule because they're great, but because they've just believed in him for forgiveness of sins. But Paul says, look, your citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what about this place where Christ rules? There is a general and a specific sense. Generally, Christ rules over all things. We saw that. Over all authority. Christ is the king of every atom and every molecule in the universe. But there is a specific sense in which he rules over those who have come and bowed the knee to him a.k.a. Christians. Becoming a Christian is believing in Christ and pledging allegiance to him, bowing the knee to him as Lord. And so he rules in us and, and through us as he takes up residence in our hearts through the Holy Spirit the moment we believe in Christ. That's one reason the Holy Spirit comes. Christ rules in us in that way and he gives us his word. His word is... With any king, there's laws, there's customs, there's wishes. The Bible are the king's laws, customs, or wishes. Which is why we take time to study it, to know what King Jesus wants. How he wants us to seek his kingdom. How he wants to rule. And then there's that future aspect of the kingdom. Among other places, Matthew 25, 31, Jesus said this, But when the Son of Man, that's a term he used of himself often, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He'll sit on a throne because he's king. 
All the nations will be gathered before him. Every individual will stand before Jesus. Take note of that. And he will separate them one from another. Two categories as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right. Those are those who in this life have bowed the knee to Jesus and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit, notice, the kingdom. Do you see that there? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Which category will you be in, friend? Which category will you be in? The sheep category or the goat category? Oh, what glories there are for those of us who by simple faith in Christ will be in the sheep category. So, that's, that's a, a quick overview of the kingship of Christ. Then a simple way to sum all this up, I'll put it up here, to sum all, all up Jesus, what he's saying about seeking above all the kingdom could be like this. First, seek after King Jesus, to know, to love the king, beginning with trusting in him, for forgiveness of our sin and pledging loyal allegiance to him. In other words, read and learn about him from scripture, have faith in him, pray. Second, seeking the kingdom means this, seek to do the king's wishes, know and live out his word. Also, seek to, seeking the kingdom means seeking to love and do life with the king's citizens in a kingdom outpost. In a kingdom outpost, the local church, theologians refer to local churches, at least New Testament kinds of local churches, as heaven's colonies. A church is, is an outpost of heaven, of the kingdom of God, before Christ comes to set up his earthly kingdom. In other words, plug into a New Testament church and do life together. That's what it means to seek the kingdom. Seek also to bring in more people to know and seek this king. In other words, praying and taking opportunities to help people see and trust in Christ the king. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom. And also it means to seek the kingdom eagerly await. Oh, we eagerly await and live in light of the king's return and establishment of his future kingdom of heaven. We live life like it could be tomorrow. And do all these things as a way of life in which I seek them first. And as you do, a funny thing happens. Worry dies. Worry dies. You don't have to focus on killing worry to kill worry. Focus on seeking the kingdom. And it's a byproduct. Anxiety just begins to be laid to rest. Are you seeking the kingdom first in these ways, friend? Be honest with yourself. Are you? Notice also, we are to seek his righteousness in verse 33. God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, it is a description of what God is like morally. That's all that is saying. And how righteous is God? Well, he is morally perfect. The word in Greek for righteousness here refers to a, a general moral uprightness. And so the command then is to seek Christ is saying, we could say this, seek first to be like God, to be as righteous and morally upright as God. How godly does God want me to be? As godly as he is. To answer that question. What's God's will for my life? Seek the kingdom. And prioritize your planners, your days, your evenings, your mornings, your thoughts. That you would become as godly as God. 
That's God's will for your life. Now this presents somewhat of a problem, doesn't it? Because if you've yet to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, this is impossible. Totally impossible. How good do I have to get to be in heaven? You have to be as moral as God. Like me, you are miles below that bar. Light years below it. The righteousness that is acceptable to get into heaven is unattainable by human beings. However, God solved that when Christ came down and died on the cross. Christ was the only one who lived good enough, as it were, to get into heaven. He possessed by his own moral finesse that righteousness to clear the bar. And so that when he died on the cross, then, he is a sufficient or acceptable sacrifice to pay the penalty for your falling short of that bar. That's why he lived the perfect life. Because you and I could not. Because we had a vastly unacceptable morality to God. And God loves us so much that as we celebrated Christmas time here, he came himself and said, watch, I will live that morally acceptable life and I will die to be punished in your place because God must punish sin. And then by believing in him, two incredible things happen. Two incredible things happen. By simple faith in Christ, God says, okay, all of your failures, all of the condemnation that you deserve for failing to be perfect in thought, word, and deed, they're put on Christ. And I punished all of them in him. And then he also says, and here, have the righteousness of Christ so that you have no fear in death. And then when you die, you will stand before God. And if God were to ask the question, well, where is your righteousness that is as godly as me? You will say, I have none. But you will point to Jesus Christ and say, by God's grace, I believed in him and I trusted in him. And so here is my righteousness, your son, God. And God will say, very well, that is vastly acceptable. Enter into heaven, child of God. This is how this all works. The righteousness you need to soar over the bar is attained not by your hands and your head and your moral deeds, trying hard enough, good intentions. Oh, no, believe me, friend, those are vastly inadequate. But that righteousness is by Christ. Be saved, friend. Some of you are banking on well, I grew up in, in a Christian family or I had this one moral, ex- moral and emotional experience one time or at one time I gave to charity. No, friend, that's only good enough to earn you condemnation. Your confidence must be in the righteousness of Christ. And a wonderful thing happens. From that point on and then only then you are able to begin to live out this righteousness, to grow in godliness and be aiming for moral perfection. God really does want us to aim for that. So we have God living in us, the Holy Spirit, so we can become as godly as God. That's why we have God, the Holy Spirit in us. And we pursue that not out of fear that 
God will condemn us when we fail once we become believers. No, 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 no. But as a father walking with a, a father of grace, a father who loves his children, there is no condemnation once we trust in Christ. Christ has been condemned. We do that in devotion and love for our father in light of what he has done in sending his son to forgive us and give us the ability to pursue that righteousness and strive towards godly perfection, which in heaven we will attain. Oh, we're under grace so that we can begin pursuing this and so that we can begin as Christ started the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember this verse? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a kingdom hunger. Because as Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of heaven isn't eating and drinking and food and paleo diets and organic this and that. No, man. The kingdom of heaven is hungering, thirsting for holiness. Hunger for holiness. Though we'll so often fail to live out God's righteousness as a believer, in every instance we're assured of our Father's love. Christ considers God as so good and so loving and so glorious that he deems it reasonable enough, reasonable enough for every believer, for every believer to be consumed with prioritizing God's kingdom and God's righteousness with our, with our lives, for our lives. He assumes that's a reasonable enough goal. And then look at verse 33, the result of all that. End of verse 33, and all these things will be added to you. Wow. Do you see that there? So how do I get all these things added to me? What things? Things that I need. Clothing. Food. Stuff. The way you get them is by seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God first. And God says, let me worry about adding to you what you need. Yes, you have to go to work. That's part of the kingdom of God. And try hard. But you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. Notice this is a very helpful worry-slaying truth. Being totally devoted to God's priorities poses zero threat to my well-being as God defines well-being. Isn't that a freeing truth? And being 100% given to God's priorities means there is a 0% chance that God will fail to care for me as he sees best. What a wonderful truth that is. I don't have to be committed to God only on Sunday in order for him to provide what I need Monday through Saturday. The most valuable thing that I need, God and his kingdom... Is given to me and I can never lose it. How much more the lesser things. So the solution to worry. Worry dies when God becomes our top priority in everything. Now, a note of caution here. As we near the end of this study on worry. Here's what can happen in our lives. As we face the battle of worry. Here's what happens. We see the problem. We see these problems in our lives. We get stuck in this issue. We think to ourselves, I really want to get out of this struggle, in this case, worry. 
And, and these solutions from God are presented, as we've seen from the, his word and the study. But sometimes, here's what happens in Christianity, where we need a fundamental worldview change. We will say this, okay, I've tried all these things, I've tried these principles to eradicate worry, and it didn't work. All of them? Yep, all of them, I tried them. They don't work. They don't work for my struggles. I'm the exception to the word of God here, and, and I'm still worried. I'm not satisfied with the results I'm getting from trying out these principles from the Bible. Do you see the problem here? This is how a lot of you approach the Bible. That approach to God's word is off. Therefore, that approach to God is off. Here's why. Because the it didn't work approach is a backwards approach to God and life. Why? Why, why does the it didn't work mindset not work? Precisely because the goal is that it would work. It has the wrong goal in life, namely that it would work for me. That something would work. That cannot be your goal. Because that goal for it to work is another way to say, I will do a thing or two that God says, but then I, I want to see the exact results that I want, when I want, how I want. I want God to be my vending machine, that when I put the, the thing in, it comes out the way I like it. I don't worry anymore. It works. But the Bible is not like a wrench given to us so that we can sort of tweak and turn the bolts of our lives to make it work. Let me say it this way. I'll put it up here. Christ is not proposing a God who works for our life, but a God who is to be worshipped by our life. The reason so many of us oh, that the Bible doesn't work, God doesn't work, Jesus doesn't work, is because Christ is not proposing a God who works for our life, but a God who is to be worshipped by our life. If our approach to God is that he works for what I want to do, then really, who is our God? You are. You're your own God. God is your butler. He's your maid or your secretary to make your life work. God helps you to worship you. I fear that some of us have been sold a bill of goods, perhaps presented a Christianity like this, especially in our nation. Often Christianity is presented as a flattery, fluff religion whose goal really is just to make things work better for me. We're told by Christian self-help books and other pastors to do these things. Be happy. Yay, it works. Keep doing this. It works. And it slowly leaves people more parched, more self-centered, more self-consumed, deceived on the happy treadmill of the religion of it works in the name of Christ. And we wonder why that doesn't work. If we take a moment to pause and think about it, however, and be honest, we know deep down something is off. It doesn't work because we're only looking for something that works instead of God of glory, instead of to worship a God of supremacy and to know this glorious God. And so that it works, it doesn't approach to life is like riding around in our canoe. Canoe. Imagine the canoe is your life. We have our name on it. We paint, we paint this canoe our own neat color and we have all our stuff in life that we like in it to make our life work. Life is as big as our canoe. 
And we set the direction where we want to go, how we want to go, when we want to go there. And then we have God. We approach life as if God is welcome to come into our canoe. God, sure, I believe in you. And, uh, I'll, and I'll tell you what, God, I'll ask you into my heart, invite you into my canoe. You can come along with me, God, and you can paddle my canoe for me. And I'll tell you faster. I'll tell you slower. I'll tell you left, right, and so on. Don't rock the canoe too much, God, okay? You're my personal savior and canoe rower, oh God. Life is all about our canoe, canoe Christianity. If you're like me, you may need to do some repenting of your canoe Christianity. Asking God's forgiveness is sometimes we're just wanting God to jump in our canoe and paddle us around to the nice, proverbial, sandy beaches. Make it work, God. We might need to bow down. Ask God's forgiveness for demanding that he be a God who works for us rather than he is a God to be worshipped by us. Often in my life there have been things and situations I really wanted that I didn't get. I've had this happen recently. I wanted them and when I didn't get it, I worried, I got anxious. I sometimes thought, God, that doesn't make sense. My life would be better if I got this thing. Why don't you just give it to me, God? And I've got upset at God. I had to repent and ask Christ's forgiveness. Because all I really wanted was Jesus to be my canoe boy and my canoe rower and canoe steerer. Go that way, Jesus. Oh, okay. Now which beach can I row you to, King Eric? Um, that one. And a little faster this time, Jesus. Sure thing, Lord Eric. And when the canoe stopped or went the other way, uh, what are you doing, Jesus? I told you this way. You need to make it work this way. I get confused. I never said I was upset at God, but really, that's what it was. I had to ask his forgiveness, turn to seeking his kingdom and his righteousness for his glory. Has that ever happened to you? Men here, brothers, some of us, is it possible we're canoe Christians? Parents, perhaps unintentionally, are we teaching our kids that God is really just a God who they should expect to work for them? They're a canoe paddler. Dad, Mom, I don't like this thing about seeking God. Oh, okay, well, I'll tell God to paddle your canoe a little harder and in a different direction, Junior. Parents, let's show our kids that God is a God whom they get to know. God is a God whom they are privileged to serve. God is a God whom the benefit is all theirs to worship. And let us set the example. If we're canoe Christians, mom and dads, our kids will follow. This will this work approach then evaluates the worth and truth of something and the view on life on whether I like it or not. But God is saying the worth in something is if you're seeking my kingdom. This is a God who is so holy, who is so majestic. His supremacy is so infinite. So unspeakably glorious. A God who knows every molecule, every flower in the universe, 
every, cre- every creature, animal, fish, cloud, star, every helium molecule and every ball of gas out there and controls it all and a God who sent his son to die on the cross for us. The privilege to worship him is all ours, friend. We don't worship him to make a work. We worship him because we get to. He offers you Christ, furthermore. What a God. This is a God who offers us Christ, not so that our life will work. Not so that our canoe kingdom would be smooth sailing. But so that we could give our lives to the thrill and the meaning and the significance and the privilege of worshiping and honoring Him with all our being. And in doing so, friend, all these things will be added to you. Some of us have such a small view of God. We need our canoe thrown, tipped over. God is so good. Worship God, friend. The priority principle, worry dies when God becomes our priority. A few minutes here. Number 13, the immediacy principle. The immediacy principle. Worry diverts us from being focused and faithful to seek God in the present. The immediacy, immediacy relating to the present, to the here and now. Notice verse 34. So do not worry. Jesus concludes about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Literally it reads, tomorrow will worry about itself. In Christ, it's a, it's a comic relief here, right? Christ personifies worry as sort of wringing its hands and pacing the floor of tomorrow. It says, let worry do its, let tomorrow do its own worrying. The immediacy principle. And notice the final phrase. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It, it could be better translated from the Greek. Something like, each day has a sufficient supply of evil for itself. So Christ is not denying that there is evil and struggle tomorrow. He's not denying that there's a lot of reasons to worry about tomorrow. He's giving many more reasons to not worry about tomorrow. He's saying instead, let worry do its, let tomorrow do its own worrying. And instead, be all here is the idea. Be focused and faithful on right here and right now. That's the idea. Give yourself fully to seeking God's kingdom in this second. Give yourself fully to seeking God's righteousness in this moment. Because when we worry, we get distracted, don't we? We're not all here. We're not all in. We have... Split allegiance, don't we? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I'd still plant my apple tree today. I like that. Corey Tenboom said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. 
And so worrying about tomorrow can be a reverse pride. Proverbs 27.1. You may know the proverb, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You do not know what a day may bring. So, so here it is. It's not prideful to plan for tomorrow. It's wise. But it is prideful to worry about tomorrow because it's like this reverse pride where we're saying we know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. We know what's going to go down, even though it hasn't happened. And so I need to worry about it, therefore. This kind of pride says, okay, even though I'm not God, I have a good idea about tomorrow and coming days. No, they haven't happened, but I'm confident I know it's, I know it's going to happen, so I'm going to sin by worrying. It's the same heart that boasts about tomorrow. Be all here. Be all here. We're not seeking first the kingdom and, and God's righteousness today when we're worrying about tomorrow. The immediacy principle. Now we're going to celebrate the death of Christ here for our sins through communion. And as we do, recall at the beginning of the study, we asked the question, okay, God will provide, but what about if people have a serious lack of food or clothing? What about death? Three quick answers to that that will tie into communion. What about like starvation and when we die? Number one, God promises to provide within his sovereignty. He'll promise what we need to do his will. For however long he's determined, we shall live. Some it's longer, some it's shorter. Second, back in verse 33, notice that there's a f- this, all these things added to you is future. They will be added to you. We will not always have conditions here to keep on living, will we? Hence, we all die, which means we will not always have conditions to keep on living. But the, these will be added to you also points to the future kingdom for all who have trusted in Christ, where there will be extreme abundance, bliss, joy, no suffering. So there's a future aspect to it. And then third, Romans 8. Put it up here real quick. Romans 8. Paul says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine without food, without clothing, nakedness, peril, sword? Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, things to come, high depth, any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we face a time then without food or safety, as we all will face various lack because we all die, we know that those things are not enough to separate us from the love of God in Christ if we've trusted in Him. Because we, we might have enough food for our entire life, but we will not always have enough health for our entire life. Again, we die. But nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. How, how can that be? Because if you've trusted in Christ, death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's not. Philippians 1. To live is Christ. To die is actually gain. Death is actually a gateway to an upgrade for your life. How much does that lay worry to rest, right? But that can only be true today. Before death If you've trusted in Christ and seek his kingdom. 
Otherwise, if you have not, death is a terrible thing. Luke 12, Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, so do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, I have no more that they can do, but I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one God who has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Death is not the worst thing. But dying without having surrendered your life to Christ is the worst thing. Because you will be thrown into hell. That is very clear. Your coming death later can only be gained if your current life now has pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ. So choose wisely, friend. Which will you have? Which will you have? Choice is quite obvious. Come to Christ today. Do not say, well, you know, that's good and all, but I need to uh, sow my wild oats and eventually I will. When I'm on my deathbed or when I'm sicker, uh, when I have time later and I'm a little older, you, know, you, you will harden your heart every day. That's how this works, friend. Today is the day to come to Christ. Today is the day to say, life is Christ and death is gain. The time is now. The time to believe in Jesus is today, friend. Do not harden your heart. God extends to you His grace and points to His Son who was killed on the cross and who was sacrificed for you. Come today, friend. Believe today. Don't delay this. Do not delay this. You wouldn't delay going to the doctor if you knew you had some significant disease that might threaten your temporal existence. How much more your eternal existence? Believe on Christ today, friend. Come to Christ. By faith, you can receive forgiveness. And you can say, death will merely be an upgrade. Some of you can't say that right now. Oh, how foolish you are to put it off another day. I beg you to be saved today. He loves you so much. And then if you will, you can come and we can participate together. The communion table, we have the bread and the cup here ingesting them does not make you go to heaven, but they are symbols, the bread of the body of Christ, the cup of the blood. And they're, they're a reminder, they're a memorial. And we take them, if and only if we've believed on Christ, just to remember. Remember that my standing with God is based on a death, the death of Christ, not my own works. We'll give you all a few minutes when you're ready to take a minute to thank God for the death of Christ. When you're ready, come. There's a table back there too. Grab a cup and the, and the bread. Please, however, do not partake unworthily. If you're a believer and you're holding on to some sin, whatever it might be, please don't partake. But you, you can just repent of that and ask God's forgiveness and know that the death of Christ was enough. And then come and partake. We'll give us all a few minutes, take some time. We'll have the band come up here as well.